Good morning, Sci-Fi Weekender. How are we doing? How's everyone's hangovers this morning? <laughs> Afternoon, sorry, of course it is, yeah. Oh, miles away. Uh, so, yes, good morning, welcome. Uh, cannot tell you how much of a genuine pleasure it is to be here and doing this interview for you today. Despite my uh, appalling performance yesterday in the Sci-Fi Pointless, which if any of you caught, I apologize for, I am a massive Star Wars, a Star Trek nerd. Uh, nearly got another faux pas straight away. Uh, DS9 in particular is one of my favorite shows. In my humble opinion, I think it changed the face of uh, TV sci-fi into what it is today from having ongoing plot arcs across multiple seasons uh, rather than just a simple episodic sci-fi show. So it is with great pleasure that I can introduce today one of the linchpin characters of that show. Uh, I could stand here and talk for literally the next hour on everything he's done in, in his over 40 years uh, in various roles, both behind and in front of the camera. So simply, I will introduce you to the legend that is Monsieur René Aubergenois. And relax. I'm just melting. I was going to say, no melting yet. <laughs> as well as that, you, you do uh, an obscene amount of voice work. Yeah. Uh, the last unicorn, boy, yeah. What, I was the laughing skull or something, the drunken skull, yeah. Actually, that was the very first time I ever did a voice for an animated film for The, for the Last Unicorn. And... Um, I had uh, the opportunity to watch it uh, recently because I have three grandchildren who are at the perfect age and um, yeah, they love The Little Mermaid, but, uh, but The Last Unicorn is kind of rarer to get a hold of and, um, and I was sort of pleased to see that it's, it's still a wonderful film and you should all check it out if you like animated films. It's good. How, how do you find the difference? Uh, do, do you prefer voice acting to physical acting? At this point in my life, I would have to say yes, because um, uh, I don't have to memorize lines. <laughs> I don't ha have to uh, spend uh, two and a half, three hours in makeup. I don't uh, have to be somewhere at uh, 4.30 in the morning to start my makeup, and um, it's just a much more flexible, you know, at this point in my life, I'm doing other things, and um, so the, the, the voice work, I can basically phone it in, which is uh, wonderful. Well, yeah, because you've done a few video games as well, because you did, again, one of my favorite video games, which is Gabriel Knight 3, uh, an adventure game, oh, if you remember really? that one, yeah. that was a great, great yeah. game. Great. I never get to see the video games because I don't know how to play them. So I, I do them. People come up and say, oh, you were Mr. House on Vegas, Las Vegas, something or other. Anyway, and I go, oh, good. <laughs> now, before we get on to DS9, there's one I would like to talk about, which is Warehouse 13. Who knew? I would have brought some pictures from Warehouse 13. People have been bringing them up to me to sign, but... Um, 
Yeah, uh, Warehouse 13, which I don't know where you all are in the series, but it's it's finished. I think now. it's two, two weeks' they, time. I think yeah, it comes back for the last is, uh, six. Really unfortunate. They um, they 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 didn't let it run the full seven years, which they should have done. It was a popular show, and um, once I joined it, I think I joined it maybe the second or third season. I'm not sure. And then I I did a guest appearance every season until the end. No, I must have must have been the second one because. I've done I'm, season I'm two, all, you, you, all up until season two, the three, end. and four. You had an right, episode right. that you were in. Can so, I, is is it over yet? Uh, not yet. No. So, the, the the last six episodes are just about to go out to air in in two weeks' time. Because I believe you're in the premiere of the of the, the episode, last the episode season. One. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, in it very. For, for those who haven't seen Warehouse Thirteen, can you explain your character a little bit? What? Can you explain your character a little explain bit, Hugo? My character. Oh, 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 Hugo. Yes. Yeah. Well, Hugo, if you remember, those who, who have seen it will remember, those who haven't, I'll try and briefly explain. He's a character who, uh, at some point, m many years before, um, was a, a technological genius, but he managed to get his DNA into a computer image of himself at that time when he was a younger man and it split him in two. And so, I don't know, left side, right side, whatever the analytical side of his brain, that character was frozen within the computer and the childlike part of him it remained in his body outside in the real world and because of that he ended up in, a, in some kind of asylum because they thought he had gone mad. And in that first episode, they managed to bring him back together. And, uh, and then I did several guest shots after that, and um, it was always questionable whether they'd really gotten him back together quite right, because he's a kind of a whimsical, silly character. And, um, and I love playing that kind of character, especially you know when you've spent seven years under latex being Odo, very serious. So anyway, does that do it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is, is there anything you can tell us about the, uh, the, the upcoming episode that you're in? Any, any, any spoilers you can give us? I'm having trouble understanding. You. Sorry, can, any spoilers? Can you tell us anything about the new episode that's coming up? The, the, oh, the new the, episodes yeah. of... of uh, the Warehouse 13. Uh, no, I can't. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> now that you ask me, uh, probably I, I say no that I can't because I don't want to do any spoilers, but also because honestly, Lindsay Wagner and I uh, appear in that premiere episode but as sort of characters from an alternate universe, we're not really, uh, we're not really who we are. And, um, and it's very brief, a very brief appearance, but very important to the, to the storyline. And within that episode, I will tell you that Lindsay's character and my character are married in that. So, that gives you an idea if you follow the show. So, there Interesting. You go. Uh, so, uh, in terms of DS9, we, we said about voice acting and physical acting. In Deep Space Nine, you directed a lot of episodes as well. In Deep Space Nine, I did. I directed eight or nine. Um, how was that episodes. stepping behind the camera? Well, um, uh, you know, uh, 
I would only have taken on the challenge of directing in a show that I felt completely comfortable that I was in uh, the embrace of the family and, and was um, and given a lot of um, help. And, uh, you know, when, it, when, when we were finishing up the series and sometimes people would say, well, are you going to go on and direct other television shows? And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, it, it, television is such a, a medium that requires such speed and, um, and the pressure is enormous. And I just didn't enjoy it, that kind of pressure. But within the, the family of Deep Space Nine, that was fine. But I was not interested in, in pursuing it further than that. But it was, um, it was a great experience to be given the chance to do that. I really am grateful to Rick Berman, our producer, who basically sort of forced me into doing it, saying, you've got to do it. Well, actually, it was Jonathan Frakes who was directing an episode and I was standing off screen talking to him between shots. And, uh, and I said, God, Rick is driving me crazy. He keeps saying I should direct, I should direct. But I don't think I'm going to do that. And Jonathan said, you're crazy if you don't do it. You'll get an education in filmmaking that would cost you thousands and thousands and thousands. Um, and you're going to get it for free. And you're going to get paid to do it. And um, it's a great experience. So because of Jonathan, um, I, I bit the bullet and did it. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of the episodes you directed were very focused on the Ferengi. There were, uh, I think, a lot I of did, them. yeah, I did. Uh, the very first one I did was very much a Ferengi show. And if you ask me what the title of that show was, I would look at you with a blank stare. It was Profit Motive. What was it called? Profit Motive. Profit Motive, that's right, yeah. And the reason I, you know, <laughs> the reason I would look at you blankly is because when, when, when folks come up to me and they mention a particular episode that they enjoyed and they n mention the title of it, um, I realize that for me, uh, seven years of doing 26 stories a year, you can do the math, uh, that it just, um, that it all became one big story. And so uh, I know that things happened to Odo and Kira and Quark and Cisco, and I know what, I, what my character did in relationship to those stories, but I couldn't tell you in what episode it happened or, uh, you know, whether it was the first season or the last season. So, that's it. I think, yeah, yeah, some of your relationships in the show were some of the best ones was the relationship between yourself and Quark and the relationship between yourself and Kira. I mean, who was the most fun to work with in those circumstances? Who was the most fun to work with? You're asking, well, uh, Nana Visitor as Kira was certainly the most pleasing one to work with. <laughs> uh, in fact, I just got an email from Nana yesterday before I got on the plane, um, and, and, and it, all it said was, I miss you, which was really sweet. Um, she knew I was coming here, and um, I hope uh, someday they'll invite her here, because uh, she's a wonderful guest. Um, and then, of course, Armin Shimmerman is my good buddy, um, we, um, 
We actually were just a, maybe two and a half, three weeks ago, we were in Frankfurt, Germany, and in Prague doing um, a, a signing a gig. And um, he and his wife, Kitty, and me and my wife, Judith, we had a week in between, the weekend in Frankfurt and then the weekend in Prague. And so we spent it with Armin and Kitty um, in Vienna, and we had a great old time. And um, Armin, I've known Armin for many years, even before I started, and we started uh, Deep Space Nine. We both, um, we both really have the same background. We came out of classical theater, uh, trained in, in classical theater, did a lot of, a lot of Shakespeare and Moliere and classics. And um, so we had a very similar way of working, which um, helped when we were directing, when I was directing, but it just helped when we were working with each other. We had a, you know, it always, um, we, we always um, were surprised that um, the audience responded so to our relationship because in fact there was only one episode, um, which again I couldn't tell you the name of, which um, in which it was all about Odo and Quark. Usually I would walk into the bar and insult Quark and he would insult me and I would go harumph and leave. <laughs> or he would walk into, uh, into my office and insult me, and I would insult him, and he would go, yeah, and he would leave. So, um, but I guess it's a tribute to the um, the wonderful. That, that, that's one of the the things about Star Trek that has been true from the very beginning. That they they're so clear in creating relationships that the audience recognizes as something they recognize in themselves and in their world, even though it's a completely alien world. And um, so it, it's just magical the way Star Trek has managed to do that. And you all could name you know, all the other characters who have had that kind of um, uh, you know, abrasive you know, love-hate love relationship kind of odd couple uh, relationship. So I had a lot of fun doing that, but I, I, I would say that in terms of um, the intensity of emotion, the relation, Odo's relationship with Kira would be the, the most lasting for me. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's what I would say. Cool. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, last year was the 20th anniversary of the show starting, so there were a lot of reunion gigs last year. How, yeah. how was that getting back with the whole kind of ensemble again? One of the great gifts of, um, of these kind of events, um, which is not happening this time, but it's usually when we get to catch up with each other. Uh, although I see Armin and Kitty, they live right down the hill, my other dear friend from this, the franchise is um, Ethan Phillips, who I call Johnny. Um, but he moved to New York uh, last year, so 
now we only get to see each other at events like this, or now I, we just bought an apartment in New York, so I hope to see him. He's actually right now on Broadway in, in a big hit show with Brian Cranston called All the Way. And um, so he's busy doing that. I'm gonna go see it next week when I get back to New York. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, the, the 20th anniversary, it's sort of scary how fast life goes. Um, it, last year, there were a number of events where we all tried to attend, and I don't think we ever made it where every single one of us was there at the same time. But we had a, a, a few events where it was pretty, uh, pretty well represented, and um, honestly, when we would do panels with like six or seven of us, I always found that a little bit difficult because I, I didn't want to be a hog and take up time talking and everybody else felt that way. So it wasn't quite as um, back and forth as this. So I, I appreciate this. Uh, that's good, so do I. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, where are we? Other roles that you've done, as well as uh, Odo, you've had several other roles within the Star Trek universe. Because originally you played Colonel West in Star Trek VI, and then you had another role later on in Star Trek Enterprise. Right. So how, how was it going from doing one role to doing a long stint as Odo, and then doing another short cameo role? Yeah. Well, you know, of course. You don't live in this universe without being aware, even if you're not a trekker, you're aware of the, the, the iconic stature of that particular story. And um, so yes, I knew about Star Trek, but the first I was ever asked to have any involvement in it, um, Nick Meyer, the writer-director who directed uh, The Undiscovered Country, and uh, Star Trek VI, I guess. Um, and um, so he, he was wrote it, and he was going to direct it. And uh, I knew him. He was a friend, a social friend. We had never worked together. And he gave me a call, and he said, well, listen, um, I'm doing this Star Trek film, and I'm, have, I'm really calling in a lot of friends to do cameos. And uh, there's a role that you could do. It'll only take a couple of days, and uh, it would be great if you did it. And I, I said, well, sure, if nothing better comes up. <laughs> I didn't know, you see. And um, the first inkling I got was when I went to have the costume, the Starfleet officer costume, fitted. And um, when it was all done, the, the wardrobe person said, uh, well, you're in for it now. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And then, as it turned out, when they released the film for the theaters, they cut a big chunk of the character was actually supposed to try to be the, was, was the assassinator, uh, but they cut that out. He was supposed to be, when he gets shot from the, up there, he was disguised as a Klingon. Um, and it was a stuntman who was described, uh, disguised as me. And, um, and then they were supposed to pull the mask off and you would see that it was uh, Colonel West. But um, 
because of tightening up the story, Nick Meyer called me before the film came out and he said, look, I'm sorry, uh, you know, we cut that whole ending part, and, but you're still in it, but it doesn't end that way. And I said, sure, I, I didn't say I don't care, but I actually didn't care, and um, but that was that. And then we started, then I was hired to do Deep Space Nine, and um, while we were shooting the pilot, Colm Meany came up to me and he said, because he had been doing um, The Next Generation, of course, and he came up to me and he said, you know, I was supposed to do uh, a Star Trek convention this weekend in Chicago, but I'm not able to do it. I can't go there. Would you step in for me? And I said, oh man, they, the show isn't out yet. They won't know who I am. He said, trust me, they'll know more about the show than you do. Uh, and um, so I went, and I was a little nervous because I'd never done this before, and in spite of the fact that I'm sitting up here spouting off and me, 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 enough about me, what do you think about me? Um, I, pretty I, awesome. I was a bit nervous, and I went out there, and I talked, and everybody was very nice, and then the folks started asking questions, and one of the questions was, how did I like playing Colonel West? I had no idea who they were talking about. <laughs> I, I said, Colonel West. And I had, done, um, I had done a couple of movies for television, um, sequels to the television series Wild Wild West. Um, and, and, I, and I thought, no, but I wasn't West. West was another character. And so I was completely confused. I didn't remember the name of the character. And I could feel the audience uh, they were already a little, if they knew me at all, they knew me from playing that nitwit Clayton Endicott III on a show called Benson. And, and so they were sort of, I think, a little bit distrustful about how that actor was going to be able to inhabit the role of someone in a Star Trek uh, show. And uh, I could feel the audience like, <laughs> I don't know. And then uh, someone said, in the undiscovered country. And I said, but how do you know that? It was all cut up. And they said, oh no, it was all put back in the video version of it. So I learned my lesson there. Uh, <laughs> and what else? And then, you know, after doing seven years of, uh, of Deep Space Nine, when Rick called, Rick Berman called and asked me to do Enterprise, uh, I said, are you sure? Is it as Odo? He said, no, 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 you won't have to wear, you won't have to have the latex on your face. And so there you go. And I got to do that. And um, Scott Bakula is a prince of a man, as charming and um, uh, hardworking, serious actor. And so we had a lot of fun doing that. And of course, you did reprise Odo briefly in Family Guy. That's true. I think basically, what did I go, harumph? Yeah. <laughs> and you know what about that harumph, which everybody sort of connects to Odo? It's something, you know, when people ask um, it, how much we have to do with our characters and how the characters develop, uh, I always point out that one of the things about Star Trek is the kind of classical... Uh, the form of it, and um, 
So we really uh, basically expected it was our responsibility to speak the lines as written, not improvise, not make up lines. Every once in a while, you might make a suggestion to the writers and ask them if you could take out this line or the, a sentence or contract a couple of words. And they would call up to the writers and then they, the word would come down, yay or nay. But um, what were we talking about? Um, <laughs> but so, you know, you really didn't have all that. You, it, your input was all about, if you think of the script as music, it was all about my instrument playing the music that the writers have written. And in the beginning, the writers had a very clear idea of what they wanted Odo to be. And so when I met with them and auditioned to get the role, I knew that they wanted a grouchy character, a covered, and so my, my experience in, in doing a lot of voice work, the first time I read a line for them, I did it in Odo's voice. And, um, and so that colored it. That started to make the character uh, something that wasn't totally their idea. And one of the other things was the harumph which I started doing, mostly with Quark. But that, that was just a sort of a, a vocal tick, and it wasn't changing a line or anything, but it was just a, a physical vocal reaction. Before I knew it, they started writing, harumph, 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 harumph. <laughs> and I called Ira there, and I, the head writer, producer, and I said, Ira, if you, if you write harumph, I won't say it. It has to come, it, trust me, it'll be there. But if I see it on the page, it looks like H-R-R-R-U-M-P-H. -R 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 and uh, so uh, they backed off of that and Odo continued to be harumphing his way through. Yeah, you, you've been in uh, so many different sci-fi and fantasy franchises. You were in Batman Forever. You've been in Stargate SG-1. Uh, is there any sci-fi franchise that you haven't been in that you really like to? Oh, wow. Sci-fi. 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 Say that ten times fast. Sci-fi franchise. Sci-fi franchise. Sci-fi franchise. Sci-fi franchise. Um, uh, I mean, personally, I'd love to see you doing something like I, Doctor Who. I did Who. Outer Limits. I think I did Outer Limits. Uh, uh, Warehouse 13. I guess I really have done a lot of them. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of actor who doesn't... Um, I, you know, people say, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to play this? Do you want to do that? And I always... My, my reaction is always, and this drives my wife crazy... Tell me what you want, and I'll see if I want to do it. And so, you know, if somebody um, offers me something, I look at it, and, um, and right away, very quickly, I know whether I feel like my instrument is going to be able to play that music. Um, so I, this is a long-winded way of skirting the question, because I, I don't really Let's have move a away, thought about it. Do you still do much theater work? Stage work? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm working right now uh, on a piece um, based on the writings of an American writer, Tom Wolfe, 
who wrote um, uh, The Right Stuff and The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, a wonderful, wonderful writer. He's quite elderly now. And uh, my wife put together a, um, a series of speeches and pieces from his writings. And uh, we are in development for that right now, and we'll see what happens with that. I'm not anxious to get back on the stage because I'm, I'm not anxious to do uh, eight performances a week, which is what the requirement is. You know, just the night before I flew here, uh, we went to see um, Patrick Stewart in, um, in Waiting for Godot on Broadway. Fabulous production, and he was the shining light. He, uh, I, I, he was just brilliant in it. And um, went backstage afterwards, and we were sitting in his dressing room. And, and he, it was a Tuesday night, so that was the first show of the week. And he knew he had two shows the next day, Wednesday, matinee and evening, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Two sh or two shows on Saturday. I mean, he looked already looked exhausted. I've never. Patrick is so fit and such a sort of. But he was just like, and he said, it, it was the last week they closed it. Um, today is Saturday. I think they're closing it tonight. Um, and he's he's done with it, you know. And he and he said, I said, you must be really looking forward to a rest. And he. He said, Monday morning, I'm flying to Spain. Yeah, so um, it, it reminded me, having done a lot of theater in repertory theaters around the United States and on Broadway, how, how, how much it uh, requires of you. Of you. And, um, and honestly, at this point in my life, I, um, I don't like to work that hard. <laughs> I, I like to do sculptures and take photographs and play with my grandchildren and hike and, uh, and really enjoy the fruits of a very long and um, basically happy career. Well, I could sit here and talk to you all day about theatre and things, but I'm sure there are lots of people out there who are dying to ask you some questions. So, if it's all right with you, we'll uh, get some questions from the audience. So, anyone? Let's see, down there, gentlemen. In Deep Space Nine, you worked with Miguel Barrett, Jean Roddenberry's wife. What was she like to work with? What was Jean, it like working with Major Barrett? Wife, Barrett? With, oh, oh, like with Major, right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm so lucky that I got a chance to have a real relationship with the character that she played. Um, and um, she was just the sweetest person. That story I told about being in Chicago for the first convention ever, she was a guest there, and she was so supportive. And, and really gave me confidence. And, um, and that's the way she always was about the show. She had a great deep love for the show. And um, from the very beginning, from the first, obviously because of her husband, the creator of it. Um, and she was just always generous and um, she was a very warm and uh, 
hearty spirit to be with, and I loved working with her. Thank you. Um, spending uh, an evening in a lift as a puddle in her skirt, I yeah. believe, was the, the scene. <laughs> okay, any more questions? Good, See thank you. you. There we go, gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen down there. Like some of the other Star Trek actors, you've said it's, uh, it was difficult to depart from the script. Yet you've also said you were encouraged to direct. Now that seems, seems funny to me in the sense that if you can't trust people uh, to de you know, with departing from a script, why would you trust somebody who isn't a director and you've got experienced directors to do that job? Can you perhaps explain a bit more about that approach then? Yeah, um, I, I'm not really, um, uh, you know, I think they're very different things. Um, in terms of, it's not a matter of them not trusting the actors. Um, you know, I've worked on other shows where, I've worked on shows where they really didn't care if you changed a little and, if, or but. Um, but, but most shows, or well, not most, but I've worked, for instance, when I've worked in David Kelly shows like uh, Boston Legal, uh, or, um, or The Practice, um, or Doogie Howser, or Chicago, uh, Chicago Hope. Um, he, the, the requirement is just the same, that there's a confidence that the writer has that what they've written is what they want. And um, so it's not a matter that they don't trust you. And, uh, and you know, I know that there were times in the seven years that we did the show where some actors uh, sort of questioned something that their character was being asked to do. Um, I know that Nana, that at one point they were going to have Akira and Gul Dukat um, have a have a relationship, and Nana said that ain't going to happen. I'm not going. So um, you know, and they heard her and they bowed to that. In in terms, so I th I think they're very different. The, the directing, you know, when you direct, you have a couple of weeks of preparation in which you uh, sit in on casting sessions. You can talk to the writers about what you think works and doesn't work. You, it, it's a collaboration at a different level earlier in the process. When, by the time we get the scripts or got the scripts, that would be sort of decided what it was going to be, and there would generally not be a lot of changes. Um, but uh, when you're directing, you're in on, on the ground floor of the collaboration process. And um, so I guess uh, by the time you get on the floor to direct it, the, you've been talking to the writers and the producers uh, a great deal about the script, and they've made it clear what they envision and what they hope you're going to bring to it. And um, if you're listening to them and you're capable, then you deliver that. Um, so it, it really isn't a matter of trust. There is actually a tremendous amount of trust involved in a long-running series. Um, uh, it's just the nature of the work. Uh, it has to be that way because you're in the trenches and you're, you have to deliver right on the spot and so there can't be any screwing around and fiddling around and uh, 
uh, ego trips. That's not to say that things like that don't happen, but they usually are sand in the gears, and, um, and it, so it didn't happen with us much at all. And uh, there you go. Okay, any more? Down there, yeah. Just run on up to the mic when you have an idea, something you want to ask. Yeah, big fan of all my kids as well. Um, if you get any um, voice acting jobs, would you carry on doing that and stay away from physical acting? No, I do a lot of voice acting. You I still do, do a lot of voice acting. I, um, uh, <clears throat> I, I just finished a series of, of pound puppies uh, playing a, a wonderfully silly bad guy, the, the, um, the person who runs the, um, the kennel where all the dogs are. And that was a lot of fun. Um, and I, um, I record a series of books, the Pendergast uh, novels, um, um, and by, um, <laughs> by uh, something and Childs. Um, anyway, two guys, and I've done nine of those. And um, I record the whole novel, and I do all the different characters and all the different voices. And uh, so, um, yeah, I, uh, voice work, I, I really have a good, just before, um, just before I came here in New York, I went into the office there and recorded um, a voice for uh, Puss in Boots, which is a new animated series based on the character in the DreamWorks, uh, you know, the, What's what you call it? Uh, Shrek. 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 There Is that Antonio go. Banderas doing that? Huh? Is it Antonio Banderas doing the voice? I don't know. Okay. I have no idea. I I just talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any more questions? Where, where, where are we at? Oh, don't be there. shy. Come on up. No. Yeah, you can do it. Oh well. Next time. You do it next time, okay? Hi. Hi. I just wondered if there was anywhere you'd wanted Odo to go that he didn't in, in the course of uh, Deep Space. Odo's what? It, was there anywhere that you wanted Odo to go as a character that you didn't oh, get a chance to do? Oh, that's an interesting question. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, I always I wanted Odo to be able to morph. Well, first I'll say that when we started the show. Morphing was a fairly new technology, and so it was a big deal. It was a big surprise. But very quickly, automobile cars were morphing into jet planes or something. I don't know. But, um, and, and when people would say, oh, I love it when Odo morphs, and I, I, in my heart, I was thinking, well, actually, that may be the least in interesting thing about the character for me because I have nothing to do with it. That all happens in a computer. And, you know, if I'm gonna morph into a bird, I go like this, and then they cut, and then they take over with the computer, and a bird comes flying out of my butt. And, um, well. <laughs> so, so the, the morphing was not, not my, uh, my favorite thing about the character. What I loved about the character was his, um, the, the contrast between the shape that he shifted into as a humanoid, which was a very rigid, 
uptight, masked character and the fact that he was actually fluid and, and that on the outside he seemed emotionless sometimes and hard-edged, but that he was actually a very passionate and sympathetic character inside himself. So I, I loved that. But that being said, the only thing I missed was, and I pitched it, but they didn't catch it, uh, I thought it would be fun to morph into other characters. Um, and uh, because I never did that, I, I usually morphed into a German shepherd or a bird or a glass of water or I came out of a wall or something. Um, so, but they, 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 they really weren't comfortable with that. They didn't do that. I always thought <clears throat> it would be a lot of fun to uh, morph into a clone of quarks and, and start moving around the station doing terrible things and getting quark in trouble. And, <clears throat> and I, I told Armin that I thought that would be fun. And he said, yeah, for you, because you'd have the day off. I'd be doing you. <laughs> so, so that would be the one thing that I, I thought we missed the chance to play other characters. And that, that would have been fun for me. But you know, obviously, I wouldn't play Quark. But I'm, I'm enough of a character actor that I have confidence that I, um, that I could have if you, well, for, for instance, uh, Jeffrey Combs, I don't know if you know, he, he was um, part of our cast. He was a recurring character. He played Brunt. He played Wayun. He played, he played, he's played, I think, more different characters on Star Trek than almost any, maybe Vaughn Armstrong has done more, but, uh, and, and I was the one, he came and he did a Brunt in an episode that I directed. Or was it the other way around? Anyway, he, um, uh, and then they were trying to cast another role for another episode, and I said, use Jeffrey. And they said, well, but we just used him as, uh, in, as, a, as a Ferengi. And I said, you will he will be so different, it will have nothing to do, the characters will have nothing to do with each other. And, and they did. And, um, He's the kind of actor, also from the stage, um, uh, who, was who I knew was capable of doing that, and, um, and I would have enjoyed doing that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> come on, come on. So that's my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> we talked. We've already talked. Hi. Hi. Um, I want to wonder what's your favorite storyline from DS9? Favorite storyline from DS9. My favorite storyline from DS9. Um, well, you mean like a story that went through the one of the one of the shows that I was particularly uh, proud of, even though I didn't play a large part in it, uh, was the uh, it was called. I'm uh, here. I'm lying. I I do remember the name of that episode because it was so isolated was Far Beyond the Stars in which we all played, I played uh, the, uh, the publisher of the comic book that uh, Cisco's character ha has written. I thought that was a real, really interesting departure, very courageous on the part of the um, 
the writers and the producers. And um, so I, I, I remember when they were about to deliver the script, Ira called me and he said, I hope you're not gonna be upset because you're sort of playing the bad guy. And I said, what, are you kidding? That, that's what I do for a living. And, um, I, and it made me remember when our son was very young and um, I was playing Richard III in the theater and um, one day we were, I was driving my, our son to school and he, after a long silence he said, Dad, why do you always play the bad guy? And I said, uh, well, it's usually the best part. And, um, and so I, I, that's what I said to Ira. Not, listen, I've played a lot of good guys, but bad guys are fascinating characters, very complex, and, um, and a lot of fun for, for an actor to play. You get to maybe chew up the scenery a little more than you get to if you're a nice guy. Is there time for a couple more? Yeah, jump on down there. It's going back a long time now, obviously, when you first went for the audition for Odo. Sorry to keep going on about Odo. Um, were you excited about going for that role? Or, I mean, obviously it's work, so it's like, was yeah. it just another audition? Or were you like, oh, I really want this thing in Star Trek and did you prepare for that audition? Did you like look at, did you know that the character was going to be a lawman, like on the frontier kind of thing? Like did you look at other characters or did you just get the brief, you knew what it was and you just went for it? The, you know, there are always, um, when you, and I was already in my 50s when I was cast as Odo, so I'd already had a pretty long career um, playing a lot of different characters and doing a lot of television shows, movies, and theater. Um, and always in, and, and I, um, I've been married for 50 years and um, this year and have had two children. <laughs> you're applauding for my wife is what you're doing. Um, uh, you know, and so I was, um, I was busy throughout my career um, being a character actor, not being some big star, that, you know. I, I, uh, I, um, so I, I was spending my life trying to support my family. So, but that being said, when job offers would come, I would look at them and have to balance whether I thought they would further, would help me go further. For instance, when they, I did a film, I did the film version of MASH, Robert Altman's MASH, um, and then when they were preparing the television version of it, they asked if I was interested in doing it, and I declined. Um, I think Gary Berghoff was maybe the only actor who had been in the film who did the, um, the series. And, you know, then the show ran for 11 years. And people would say to me, or maybe more than that, no, 11 years, I think. And, and people would say, oh, my God, don't, don't you regret not doing that? And, in fact, that was the reason 
I decided not to do it. Not that I knew it would last 11 years, but that I knew that at that age, I was, when I shot MASH, I was in my 20s still. And I was just turning 30 when they started doing the series of MASH. And I had a sense that going from the movie, playing the Dago Red, the priest, into Father Mulcahy in the television series, that it would just seal my fate. You know, the, the expression is type casting. And in fact, that has proven to be true. William Christopher, who played the role of Father Mulcahy in the television series, hands down, brilliant, wonderful performance. But in fact, you know, that's, that's been his career. And I really had my sights set on playing a lot of different characters. And, um, uh, and I sort of forget what the point of your question was. <laughs> I don't know whether I'm answering it or were not. You, were you excited? I mean, oh, now, oh no, yeah. And, and so what I'm saying is that I, w I have this rule when a, when a job is offered to me, I say, uh, will it be challenging? I like to take roles that I don't know the answer to when I read them. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I know that I'll be able to do it, play it, but I don't know, it's still a mystery to me. Will it be challenging? Will it be fun? And will I get paid? <laughs> and you hardly ever get all three of those things, but you have to get two of them. It has to be challenging and you get paid, or fun and you get paid, like uh, uh, Police Academy 5 or something, which was the silliest film I ever did, but I had more fun doing it than almost anything I could imagine, or whatever. So when, um, when Star Trek came around and they were looking for the character of Odo, and I was gonna have to go in and audition and I don't like to audition. It's, I feel it's very weird. You walk into a room, there's a bunch of people sitting that you don't know sitting behind a long table, and you read the lines, and it's not, you're not in, you're not in costume or makeup. You're, it, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. So I, um, but I, I had a daughter who was at university, just starting university, and our son was about to start university. And uh, my wife said, well, how are, how are we going to pay for this? And I said, well, uh, we either sell the house or I get a series. And then this came along, so I decided to go to the mat for it, to really try and get it, because I knew that it was a franchise that had legs, that was going to, um, you know, that had a, I was pretty sure it would run for a good long time and that I would make enough money to send my kids to university. And um, so I went back, I remember I, I went in the first time, I was sitting in the hallway waiting to go in, actually Armin was there too, but he, he wasn't going in for Odo, he was going in for Quark. And, um, and so it was my turn to go in and uh, Ron Serma, one of the casting directors, was leading me to the door to go in. And just before he opened the door, he turned to me and he said, nobody's been grouchy enough. And I walked through the door and there they were all sitting behind the desk. And I, and I put the script down. And the first line I had to say was, Quark. 
And I did that. And there's a thing that happens when you're auditioning in a room. You know pretty quickly whether or not you're in the ballpark or in the game at all. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's just a feeling that it's very hard to define, but I could sense that there was a shift and that was not what they expected. First of all, because I was too old for the character that Michael Piller had envisioned. He envisioned it as a young Clint Eastwood. And any good casting director, when, when, he know, when a good casting director, he or she, knows that the producers and writers are, are going to have to audition 25 different versions of a young Clint Eastwood, they sort of throw in a ringer or a, a palate cleanser, and they throw in someone who's not at all what they imagine. And so that's one of the things, that's what I was. And I learned later that when I left the room that first time, uh, Rick Berman turned to everybody and he said, well, I think we found Odo. And Michael was a little, you know, because Michael had written the original, created the character, he was a little doubtful. So I came back a second time and, uh, and he was sold on it. I didn't know any of this. Then I came back a third time. I was getting really kind of bored with this process. Not bored, I was nervous and I didn't like the pressure. Uh, and it turns out that some Paramount executive who was sitting there just didn't think I was right for it. He just kept saying, no, 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 no. So then I came back a fourth time. And I did it. Oh, well, no, after the third time, I remember I went home and I was in my study and our daughter called. She was uh, doing theater in the summertime. And she said, hi, Dad, how did, the, how did the audition go? And I said, oh, I don't know. It's just, they want me to come back again. I've been there third, three times and they want me to come back again. And I was really depressed. And she said, that's great. And, and I thought, well, she's right. That is great that they keep asking you back. So I pulled it together and I went back for the fourth time. And I did it. And I left and I went home, which was our home at that time was very close to Paramount Studios. So I was home in five minutes and I was in my study and the phone rang and my agent said, where are you? I said, what do you mean where am I? I'm at home. He said, but you're supposed to be uh, auditioning for Star Trek. And I said, I just did it. He said, what? They, they just called and, and wanted you. They want you to come back for a fifth time. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that can happen. Um, <laughs> and as it turns out, they, uh, they decided that I didn't need to come back a fifth time because what happened was the executive from Paramount who, who, who kept saying, no, 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 they were in a conversation in the room about... Uh, Cast, casting um, Jadzia, and they couldn't cast the role. They wanted a certain kind of actress, they wanted a beauty, they wanted this and that, and they hadn't found anyone. And um, 
this executive was rejecting all the different women who'd come in. And he said, you know, Rick, it's like, like the way you keep pushing for that guy to play Odo. He's just not right. And, and, and Rick Berman looked at him and he said, you understand that his entire face is going to be covered in rubber. And the guy said, oh, well, that's okay then. There you go. Now, did I answer that question? I totally forgot. I think so. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I'm afraid that's all that we've got time for. So oh, really? It's, okay. It, it's been a genuine pleasure talking to you. Thank so, you. Ladies and gentlemen, Ooh, Monsieur René Aubergenois. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to be signing out there. And if you want to make a $5 donation to Doctors Without Borders, I will, did I say $5? Five quid? Uh, I will draw a cartoon for you right there on the spot, hot, fresh out of the oven of, of Odo's bucket, and I'll personalize it. So, and it's all going to Doctors Without Borders, which is the best. And uh, anyway, thank you very much for being here. Yeah. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the weekend.